I'm Jasmine Falk Dickerson. Today's guest is a brilliant artist and social justice advocate from the Pacific Northwest. His story is a truly inspiring one. I know you too will be awestruck by his brave passion for preserving the true roots of American culture and arts. Today, I want you to meet Joe Siemens. Okay, you guys, I'm really, really excited to introduce you to Joe Siemens today. The interview with him was so unbelievably amazing. Uh, I lost track of time and I realized that there's no way that we could pack it all in in one interview. Um, So today you're going to get to hear his story, his background, a little bit of an introduction of, you know, what led him to become who he is today as an artist and as a performer, as well as how he got to the point of working on all the projects that he's working on right now. I absolutely am going to have Joe back for a second episode, hopefully in a few weeks, where we will dive even deeper into the projects that he's working on. He has worked on social justice for the last um, decade here in the Pacific Northwest. He uh, currently works, lives in the Seattle area, but his um, kind of life and artistic trajectory began in the Portland area in Oregon. I can't even tell you how much fun I had to just sit back and listen to all his stories, his inspiring uh, path to uh, all the different projects he's into. I'm not going to even say much more. I really just want you to sit back, relax, and enjoy getting to know Joe, getting to know his projects, and I hope that you will be inspired by, um, you know, by his passion and hopefully not only contribute to his projects, but also Think of it as your own mission. You know, how do you want to march forth in the world? How do you want to preserve American culture and the roots of our um, arts and um, everything that really tells the story of um, us as American people? So here's Joe Siemens. Hey, Joe. Oh, my goodness. It's so good to have you on the show. Um, It's kind of crazy because I was getting ready to host a house concert for you and Ben right before we went into the lockdown. So we have to meet virtually. Hi. Hi. It's It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm kind of excited because um, we get a chance to talk. Uh, And of course, we'll listen to a little bit of your music. But um, right now, I just really want to know more about your music because it's not just music for pleasure. It's actually music with with intention. Um, And so this will be a great introduction for myself, for the listeners to get to know all the work that you've been into and then eventually when we bring you back for that concert we can really enjoy it in a way that's so much more deep so yeah so we are living in this crazy time of the stay-at-home era the COVID-19 how have you been coping with all this well it's definitely been a challenge I'm a I'm based up up near Seattle over on Bainbridge Island but I have deep roots down here in Oregon where I am right now and so 
you know, my, my folks live out in a pretty rural part of, of Northwest Oregon and my aunt lives in Portland. And <clears throat> so I've been down here trying to support them. Just basically, you know, they're older folks and at least the, the understanding a couple weeks ago was that the older folks are higher at risk. So I've been just down here trying to like do the grocery shopping and do the things that, that can minimize their exposure um, because, you know, I might as well use my immune system for good for those closest to me. It's wow. kind of how I'm trying to approach wow. it. Yeah, that's so. that's awesome. Um, are you doing any music projects um, remotely like most of the other performers and artists? Yeah, yeah. My my partner and I, um, she performs as Briar. We're we're preparing to to kind of launch the the promo for our own kind of stay at home concert. Oh, and we've been rehearsing for that pretty steadily, and that kind of overlaps with just working working on our working on our duo, you know, we have, we have other musicians we like to perform with as well, but obviously that's not possible right now. Sure. So, you know, and then, and then I've done a lot of, um, video chats as we'll talk about later. I have the Rhapsody project, which is a bunch of students in South Seattle where a big part of my heart remains. And that is where I teach on the regular. And so I've been video chatting with those students and we've actually just started doing a daily, just like hang out, talk about songs, go deep on one song a day. Wow really try to like engage that way we do a little bit of guitar guitar lessons that way too um so i've been just trying to stay connected with people through video chat and through phone calls and you know trying to take the opportunity to that everybody has so much time to to call some people that i that i should be staying in touch with more and and then trying to create some sort of structure so that I'm not just like in my sweatpants, like, you know, scrolling through Facebook all day, just agog at the madness, (laughs) you know? Which part of the, I think part of the gift that's coming through this whole new normal is really disconnecting from the kind of the, 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 uh, the silly, the futile, if you will, to really focusing on and engaging in what you are already, you know, doing with your students at a deeper level and maybe even with ourselves and finding a new creative juice that's flowing there that maybe we neglected, uh, during the busy hustle and bustle of everyday life. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about this, this particular moment, you know, obviously, the, the the qualifier before we get into like trying to focus on the positive of it is just you know there are a bunch of there are a bunch of people especially those folks working in emergency rooms and those folks who have to do their jobs and are at risk through doing their jobs yeah. still um, that we have to be respectful of um, and so I just you know I just encourage everybody out there if you know someone who is in any part of the healthcare industry then. And, and you can you can support those people that are that are you know being most tried by this time. That's that's where the work is, right? Absolutely. That, that's what we have to do from wherever we are, however we can. You know, obviously, there's artists and a whole bunch of us gig workers that are really struggling. Um, but I think there's even more of us that have figured out that we have enough to get by for a while, and now we have a bunch of time and an internet connection on our hands. So, what you know, how do we take the opportunity? to to not let a good crisis go to waste you know seriously yeah what a what a way to put that because uh, in essence the moments of crisis is when we all show up as activists you know we can yeah. we can choose a topic we can choose a cause and we can be activists when everything is just going great or not so great but in the moment of mm-hmm. true crisis that affects all of us that's when people show up as activists and activism is I mean you can you can be an activist by just showing up by just practicing and being you know a person that comes from 
from a place of kindness or compassion or, or, you know, full on, I'm going for it and I'm, you know, raising hell to be heard and seen for me or for, you know, a community that I'm so invested in. And and these are great times. I mean, you raise a, a wonderful, wonderful point. You also mentioned that you are in Oregon right now. And so this is a great segue into your, you know, your early upbringing, your life. You, you, mm-hmm. um, you grew up in Oregon. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, Joe, the child, Joe, the, you know, the, uh, the new and, uh, clean slate before discovering all the things that, you know, are now part of who you are as a musician, as an artist, but as a human being as well. What was the foundation? Well, I mean, really quick on my parents, just to set it up, because I'm really big on the topic of heritage is that. And that's part of the whole story. So, yes. Right. Right. So my, my, my father is descended from farmers in in central England, <clears throat> a little town called Whedon has gravestones with my last name spelled on it, you know, exact spelled the same wow. from the 1500s. And so there's records of the Siemens family there from like the 1490s until, you know, they, they basically died out in the mid 1950s. Wow. Um, but so I, I come, I come, uh, my body comes from Northwestern Europe of mm. uh, my, my mom's, you know, Scandinavian, uh, Swedish, French, um, and that's that's where and German, and so mm-hmm. I'm I'm from I'm, I'm like Germanic West, mm-hmm. like you know that's that's where that's where like ethnically I'm coming from at, before my family came to America, and my mother's people came over on the wagon train. They they were they were like they they follow this guy. William Keel, who splintered off from the Lutherans in the mid 1800s, and oh. then they they went from Baltimore to St. Louis, and then from St. Louis they founded the Aurora Colony, which is down a little bit. Um, it's a it's it's near Salem, Oregon. So it's it's over. It's kind of between Portland and Salem, somewhat. And so I'm a fifth generation Oregonian, um, and was raised on my my folks met. They can't really agree where they met. They met either at a at a square dance or at a cider pressing party or something like that yeah. out in Northwest <laughs> Oregon after my dad moved up from California where he was raised. And so, I, so they, they were like being hippies in the woods in the 1970s. <laughs> I love that. Um, the, the, the proper term being back to the landers. They were too young to be hippies. So they were back to the landers. They built wow. their own geodesic domes in the woods. No and, kidding. That's amazing. Yeah. Yep. And, and so then, so then they, they, you know, it, they founded, um, my dad, and his buddies like got got a loan from a friend and bought a little 40 acre plot and had their you know what we would now call a commune but wasn't really organized enough to be a commune (laughs) 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 but it's 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 still going it's now called the cadenza corporation they have the mist mountain farm out there in mist oregon and so my folks my, my dad was living out there and my mom was living nearby and they and they bought a little plot of land in what's technically Deer Island, Oregon, in about 1982, and built their own house there. And I was born in 1984, and was raised for the first 18 years of my life living in that house in Deer Island. And so that Deer Island's between the towns of Rainier and Vernonia. Okay. And so this is all like this is like nor- the the Northwest Oregon wilderness between Portland and Astoria, mm-hmm. basically halfway between Portland and the Oregon coast. In the foothills of the Cascade Range, so that is where I come from, and so I was raised going like to public school. In the little, the closest school was Rainier, was Rainier grades, you know, Hudson Park Elementary in Rainier Middle School and Rainier High School, mm-hmm. and so that was where 
I had my days. I spent, you know, five days a week I was there. But, you know, Rainier, the culture in Rainier was the exact opposite of what my folks were all about, which was, you know, you know, well, I was going to say they're yeah. almost hippies. You know? Right. I was going to say I expected you to say I was homeschooled and or right, unschooled. Right. Um, but yeah, no. So you, you they created a balance. That's, you know, that's yeah. awesome. I mean, my dad got my dad was got his engineering degree. And so he was working in the pulp and paper mills in Longview. And so he would just drop me and my brother off on his way to work every morning. He'd drop us off at school and he'd go into Longview, which is across the river from Rainier in, in Washington state. Mm hmm. And so I was living between two cultures of my parents and their friends. And my parents, we had we had some friends in Rainier, but but really their culture was not anything the same, right? The Rainier culture was small town America, was football and sports are the center of the universe. Wow. And a lot of people like are born and raised there and have their kids there and, and they have their parents nearby and they don't they, they never go anywhere. Like when we got one of my, my, my great aunt died and she left us a little bit of money and my parents used it to go to Europe when I was about 14 and I nice. got to see Europe for the first time. And the general response we got from people in Rainier was, huh, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, Whoa. Like, like that, like it's, you know, that, that's the wow. kind of like, it's just like, it's not, it's, there's not a lot of awareness or interest in the world outside mm -hmm. of our, that little bubble. Yeah. So, so I was raised in a town like that but but the culture I was I was a part of at home was a different scene because my parents were on the other end of the political spectrum they had all these friends who had square dances and played folk music and had cider pressing parties out wow. in the woods oh, wow. and that was just not anything like what was going on in Rainier the overlap was that some of people from both of those cultures are loggers mm. or longshoremen mm -hmm. but so the work they did was definitely similar but the the values were not all the same. So that is what I was raised in. That's amazing. Um, it's, it's so cool because I hear you talk about how at home you had your culture and outside you witnessed a different culture. And similarly, I grew up very similarly because my parents also having been, you know, educated, my father was edu educated in Italy where he met my mom. Um, and at home, we had a very Italian home. It smelled like Italian food. It smelled like espresso. We spoke all in Italian. My father spoke Italian. Um, we dressed as we wanted. We behaved as we wanted. Our furniture was very European. But then you leave, you know, the comfort of your home or the comfort of the community that's like yours. And all of a sudden, you're noticing a completely different culture. And um, yeah. as it's so for I know for me, that was really challenging. I struggled with that a lot with my own identity, with my own coming to terms with, you know, what felt so real in my bones, which was what at home was happening. And then also finding that I had to adapt to what was happening outside and then kind of almost feel fake because I had to play that game or that part. How did that work for you? Um, it was definitely well, at you know, because of the majority of my waking hours I was spending in Rainier, like I was not, and, and, and you know, everybody kind of like thinks whatever their parents are into is not cool, right? So th yeah. those two factors combined meant that like until I, until I got to be in like about 15 or 16, I was not interested in anything my parents were interested in except for their record collection. I liked, mm -hmm. I liked you know, they had a bunch of, you know, a lot of the, popular music from the counterculture in the 60s in their record collection and I, heard, I listened to that music a lot as a kid and mm -hmm. that was that was beautiful to me 
Um, but I was not interested in going to the square dances. I didn't really think twice about the music that the musicians were playing at, around the fire at the parties yeah. out at Kesey outside of Vernonia. You know, like I wasn't, I was interested in NBA basketball. I was, I was a diehard Portland Trailblazers fan. I was trying to play basketball as much as I could. Wow. I was, you know, I eventually got, I, I had to have a knack for, I knew I wanted to perform. I was a, I was like a theater kid for, mm. It, there wasn't much of a theater program, but what there was, I took part in in middle school, in high school. Um, so, like, I always had the urge to perform, mm-hmm. and that's 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 part of, I don't know, just my my type A whatever personality mm-hmm. I have. Um, but that, but other than that, like, I was really disinterested in things. I, was, I just, I was into, I was a part of the culture that I was being brought up in with my friends, you yeah. know, and and they valued sports and they valued, you know small town America. And until I got to college at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, I was never surrounded by a majority of people who like were raised in the same, the same type of household as I was, you know, like an an upper middle class liberal household of basically hippies who kind of like turned in their hippie card and and became, became the, uh, you know, good little capitalists, you know, that's, that's what, that's what Mm -hmm. me and my friends who were raised, you know, in the nineties, who grew up in the nineties, like that's, that's what we experienced. Sure. Uh, uh, culturally, were you pretty isolated? Um, you you talk about you know being really into theater and basketball. I'm guessing at that time you weren't playing much music, um, but right. culturally, the the community around you were you exclusively in a very white neighborhood. W- were you exposed to any kind of beyond, you know, yeah. other than American cultural you know influences? Yeah, the cultural influences um, in terms of richly melanated people, there was none. Um, wow. There was like, you know, literally like, I remember that uh, a boy who I think was probably probably raised in a mixed race household, he moved to Rainier for maybe a year um, before he, he moved on. We don't know what the, I don't know what the circumstances were. There were no Latino folks in in our community. There was no, it was all white folks. And you know, that's my design in Oregon. Oregon was created as the so-called white paradise that was designed to attract folks after the Civil War. Um, you know, they advertised it, you know, and and they instituted the state as you, you, it was illegal to be black there. And that sent a message about who, who Oregon would welcome and who they would reject. Unbelievable. And so Oregon still reflects that sad and shameful legacy. And so mm-hmm. my community also reflected that. I didn't know a single or... I wasn't aware of a single uh, indigenous person. Wow. I was not aware of um, any any folks of color. Um, so the the culture was either hippies or hicks. You know that yeah. was basically it. That was the, the dividing line. Like you had you had folks who worked in the sawmill, worked in the paper mill, or worked in the the paper mill or the longshore work, and then you had and then you had people who you know and those guys were hunting and fishing and like doing the things that we associate with like what we call rednecks right and and then there was there was like the little people around the fringes like my parents who really like didn't have any interest in that stuff but were about you know environmentalism and you know the the values that that you know that were kept by the hippies even as they as they became good little capitalists 
Yeah, no kidding. I mean, that's that. It's so interesting to see that that um, the environmental aspect for the hippie, so-called hippie community of that time, was so focused on what seemed like this beautiful, perfect, and utopic lifestyle. But yet, it seemed pretty exclusive, even though that wasn't perhaps their intention, and for sure not your parents' intention. But that's kind of what ended up being the uh, the, the stamp of that culture, right? It's, right. Yeah, and it, and that's a and that's a and that's a I think a product of the lack of diversity, right? The, the reason that so many of us want to live in a diverse culture is because we need other perspectives, and we need we need our we need our little worldview to bump up against other worldviews, and we need to ch- take in those challenges and and let them challenge our way of thinking. And so, when you have you know that the function of social segregation and the function of American whiteness is to create an incredible spiritual and mental inertia that allows somebody like Donald Trump to become president, yep. that allowed George Bush to become president, yep. that allows um, you know, just, the, just the, the resistance to progress, to acknowledging global warming being real. You know, that's all a product of the fact that we have a ton of us in this country were raised like I was and didn't have any culture outside of our own that was you know, beyond a few things maybe in the media that would sneak through, or the the fact that a lot of the the people who are playing sports successfully on a professional level were are are people of color. Like you just don't you're not exposed to that at all. You know, that's so true. Um, I, I I really love and admire your courage with calling things out in a very kind of honest way, in a very casual way almost. Um, but it is the truth because the journey of an immigrant, for example, my own. Coming to this country, you know, I I had the impression that this is America. It's, you know, a modern, liberal, democratic country. They're educated. They know everything. And um, to my surprise, not knowing about your own culture, about your own country, um, I did not expect that. I mean, which then, of course, translated into not knowing anything about the rest of the world. Um, And that, I think, for me, was the 20-year culture shock. Because people always ask me, did you encounter culture shock when you came here? No, because I traveled. I'd been to the States before moving here in the late 90s. I, you know, traveled the world. I've seen Europe. But the culture shock to me was the fact that there was such little... Um, not only knowledge, but almost interest. It seemed like there was very little interest at the time to know more about the own, you know, their own culture and heritage. And now it's become a little trendy to get to know, you know, history and culture and heritage and all that. So partly it's a trend and partly there is a genuine interest in making that change. And then there's, you know, like you mentioned, that whole category of people that are still in denial and holding on to something that clearly has not worked. Um, and perpetuating that. Um, So having that kind of intellectual understanding, but yet not the opportunity to experience it in your life, where did, where did it change? When did the click happen? Yeah, it it was, it was definitely, you know, being a, being an angsty teenager and, you know, having the kind of the steady influence of my parents, you know, my mom is a painter, she's a landscape painter. And Mm -hmm. so she was always an artist. And in the summer's um, we would go down to the Oregon coast for two weeks and she and her friends, and when I was young, I would also paint every day. We would, we would go out in the landscape uh, along the, the coast there and wow. we would just paint from nine to five. And then we would make food at night and critique each other's paintings. Wow. And so, <laughs> so that, you know, and that still goes on. That's, you know, we, we always call it the watercolor workshop, but it's now led by Eric Sangren. It was founded in the, 
in the 70s by his father Nelson Sangren, wow. who was the art director at the universe at uh, at the University of Oregon, and and so it's it's this beautiful tradition that I was lucky to be a part of mm-hmm. because Eric's father Nelson and my grandfather were friends around the time of the Second World War. So I have like this three generations long connection with their family, and so I, I always had that kind of steady trickle of that that was going on and. And there, you know, Eric and Catherine were like, might as well have been my aunt and uncle. And wow. their daughter Kate was, is a wonderful singer who I've made music with. And so, like, I had connections like that that really helped. Um, I, but then the the, the sw- but I mean, just to set the table, I mean that yeah. that the the switch really happened when I was I was in high school and I was in the theater production of um, I was doing Our Town, mm-hmm. and I got you know like romantically involved via like you know MSN messenger with my with my co-lead in the play Ooh. and she and then I got my heart broke and I just had to start playing guitar every day of course. to like process as to one process does the heartache right <laughs> as as any angsty teenager does and and that was like okay well now I'm playing guitar every day and and the the sh- like and trying to play basketball and play basketball and play basketball just started to lose its like I wasn't getting what I needed out of that anymore, and so it was like I I one day just have a you know vivid memory of just walking away from that, and so I start I start just playing the guitar and playing and getting really into Bob Dylan and getting really into nice. the Beatles and reading about you know starting to read biographies about all these artists who I had been learning about through my parents' record collection, yeah. and so I just became a total Bob Dylan fanatic. And studying him it's led a good me to thing. Woody Guthrie. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> it led me. It led me to Woody Guthrie, and it led me into the blues because I, I was after I started doing some study of it, kind of independently. I realized like, oh, Dylan. As much as you know, everybody thinks about the the Woody Guthrie influence on Dylan. There's a profound influence of blues music too. So I started listening mm-hmm. to Robert Johnson. Wow. And that and that in Harry Smith's folk anthology just led me all the way down the rabbit hole, and I discovered this other magical realm of music and it resonated with music I had been hearing all my life and that was the music that that my friends parents played so my friends my parents had these friends Hobie Kiter and Dave Berge and they had a little folk duo when I was a kid and they put out one album it was called Dog Salmon and Rutabagas wow and Dog Salmon and Rutabagas is a great record and it's all their original songs um, mostly Hobie Kiter songs and Hobie is another lifelong Oregonian who's a you know a walking encyclopedia of the of the history of the Pacific Northwest over the past 150 years, wow. and he has written many many songs about gill netting and about working on the river, working working in the fishing industry, and and some great songs about about logging, and you know like stuff like where did all the timber go, and songs that trace the life cycle of the trees as as the forest grows up and so beautiful so he, he you know he's he's just a a visionary brilliant songwriter banjo frailer and guitar player so dave was a was like doing all the work that hobie would write about dave was a fisherman and he was a logger and he was just you know he was a a, a good old boy he was a man's man you know he was a very studly great dancer uh you know just like all the you know all the women swooned over dave berge mm. and he was and he, but he had this sweet gentle personality and and had fought in the vietnam war and definitely had like psychological problems mm. from that and a drinking problem so you know he was just you know he was a he was a salt of the earth and he was a tragic character and he was a beautiful beautiful spirit and so those two men 
had and have a profound influence on me. And so like when I started discovering early American folk music and you know it had this other resonance for me because I had always been exposed to the music of dog salmon and rutabagas, which mm-hmm. is music about the work that happened where I was living. And you know, with, with the notable exception that you know the, the Chinook people were nowhere in evidence, right? I was not yeah. exposed to their music. I was not exposed to their culture. I only knew them as a word and a name for a kind of salmon. That was all. Wow. That was all the the indigenous like awareness that there was. You know, yeah. I had a vague idea that the, that the native folks had been screwed over, but I didn't really, you know, it's not talked about. It's not polite to talk about it, right? Right. That's the same reason why, like. Like you saying that like I'm brave the way that I talk openly about like these issues of race is like it's not really bravery it's just bucking the trend of like being like what what passes for politeness in our messed up culture is to is to ignore or sidestep those issues because it's more comfortable to not talk about them than to address them absolutely you know? yeah um, here here uh, so your exposure and up until that point, other than the awareness, like you were saying, of recognizing, you know, indigenous struggles just as a kind of a historic context that remained within that particular box. Um, at that point, your exposure as it grew into the traditional realm was still around, you know, the white community of Oregon. You hadn't like gotten that exposure outside just yet as a teenager. Right. Well, yeah, all I, all I had was a I, you know, I, I have a distinct memory of being 17 or 18 and having like ordered or bought somehow the complete recordings of Robert Johnson. And I remember putting that CD in the CD player and being like, oh, this is something else significant, you know, but I had no awareness that there were still people playing that kind of music. I had no, you know, I, I loved, I was exposed to hip hop on yeah. the radio. Yeah. Like I liked Outkast. They had a great record of called course. Equimini from oh, like yeah. 1995. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I heard some of that that I liked. And so I was definitely a fan of hip hop because that, again, that's what I was hearing in Rainier mm-hmm. that we listened to what was on the radio. Right. And so that was my only other kind of exposure, but it wasn't any, it wasn't in person. It right. was through. Had you started playing music and writing music at this point, or was it still kind of just like a, uh, we're sort of getting there. Like you said, the angsty teenager finding the guitar because his heart was broken. When did it start to where you were like, wait a minute, there's, this might be my life. Um, when did mm-hmm. you pick up the banjo? When did you start meeting, you know, other people? And yeah. how did that happen? Yeah, well, first it started through just like, I was like, okay, well, now I got to be a songwriter. Like, obviously, just got to do, got to do the, I can, I can do the, the Bob Dylan thing. And like, and I was playing harmonica on a neck rack and I was strumming guitar and I was, and I would write a lot of lyrics, but I was very, I don't know if I was uncomfortable or I wasn't confident enough or what, but I didn't really put my lyrics together with with music very much. Mm-hmm. That's always been a struggle for me. Um, so I was I was really just like interested in being a songwriter, and so decided like about age seventeen or something. Okay, well I'm gonna go to school and I'm gonna get I'm gonna study I'm gonna study poetry and I'm gonna study music and wow. that'll give me all the tools I need. So that's what I did. I applied to a bunch of schools and I decided to go to Lewis and Clark College. And so my next phase of musical development was really playing a lot of music with my friend Gavin Duffy. And Gavin's like one of those people who just picks up an instrument and in 10 minutes he can play it, you know? Wow. He, yeah. he, he got a very good uh, music education where he grew up down in, down in around San Diego. And, uh, and so he's, he's been a, a, a friend and collaborator musically ever since we met in the, in the performing arts dorm 
you know, back, this is about 2003, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and so we always played music together. And then I was taking, you know, I was taking music theory classes and I was mm -hmm. singing in the choir and I was doing all, the, jumping through all the hoops to get a, a music degree. Mm -hmm. And I was studying with, a, I studied with a couple of guitar players, uh, Dan Balmer and Scott Kritzer. But again, like, I knew I was interested in blues music, but as as is the case in far too many American uh, up, you know, higher education institutions, they don't really have anything for you if you want to actually study American music. Right. They've got you covered for European music. They've got you covered for classical music. Yep. They've got you covered to become a, a member of the institutional system, right? right? The institutional music system. But if you want to like be a musician, you got to go to like one of, you know, maybe there's five of those schools now that really give mm -hmm. you some, you know, there's like Berkeley, Berkeley and there's, of course. you know, they're out there. Yeah. But, but you know, unless you, unless you go to one of those schools, they're not giving you any tools for that. So, and, and, and it's unfortunate because I feel like that should be almost, and, and I don't usually like to use the word should, but in this case I do, it really should be part of the curriculum of the American history. I mean, when we're learning music in the arts, it ought to be something that all kids have access to, to really know the history of the American, um, you know, evolution and where it came from and how it was influenced. So it is a bummer. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, and I want to, and I want to follow up on that thought when we get the story to where we started the Rhapsody project, cause yes. that's what I'm about now. Um, but so I, you know, that was a frustration for me because I was trying to be a songwriter and there wasn't really, you know, it was like, well, you study classical music and you can study poetry, but we don't really have anything for you, kid. And so it was just kind of like, you know, playing, <laughs> playing Bob Dylan songs and Beatles songs and, you know, the songs that I liked from my parents' record collection and a few of Hobie and Dave's songs and kind of just like getting into that as much as I could on my own and with my friends that I could convince to play music with me. And just doing that in the cracks between doing this liberal arts education. And so mm. I, I went through Lewis and Clark College. I got, you know, they didn't, they rejected my ethnomusicology thesis. So wow. I had, a, I ended up with a minor in music and a major in English literature mm. and graduated in 2007. And, and, and along this way, I got, you know, I got more and more convinced and aware the, the specialness and the power of Hobie and Dave's music. And so I, I covered some of their songs in my, in my senior recital at Lewis and Clark. And then, and then I finally, a few years later, got around to asking Hobie to teach me to play the banjo. And then I started frailing banjo at the age of 26. Wow. And Hobie and I couldn't get it. I was, I was working as a teacher and a full-time musician at that point. I couldn't make the time to go out to Astoria and, and get a banjo lesson. So Hobie, after we tried for a few weeks to get a time that would work, Hobie finally just said, okay, Joe, well, here's what you do. And he emailed me directions for how to frail the banjo. Are you serious? So I learned, I learned frailing banjo via email from my, from, no my, way. <laughs> from my mentor Hobie. That's yeah. epic. Oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> Did, were you now teaching private lessons at the time or? I was teaching mostly, I would teach in after school classes. So okay. out in East Portland, I would teach some for a while at HB Lee middle school at Rao middle school. I taught after school music classes, um, on mostly guitar and just taught people to play the guitar. Mm -hmm. And so I would do that two or three times a week. And then I would play gigs. I, by this point, I had a band called Renegade String Band. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was playing with them as much as I could. And that was some of my original music and a bunch of, you know, a mishmash of covers of the different kind of music I liked. Mm -hmm. um, and, but that really like, I don't know, I didn't really, I still don't feel like I had found my path yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was in Portland for a while doing that. 
and then and and like what I was doing evolved. I got I, I started like really two groups where I was doing like kind of my original stuff with one group, and then another. I started um, Timberbound, which was. Gavin, who I mentioned earlier, and then mm -hmm. Kate, who I mentioned earlier, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. Gavin being like my musical, just my 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 dear friend and and a, a musician I always look up to and plays amazing solos and can play any mu instrument you want him to play. And then Kate, who just has like an incredible soprano voice. And so the three of us formed a little group called Timberbound, and we started covering the Timberbound songs. Wow. Which is a whole other story, but that's basically <laughs> other songs from Northwest Oregon that were written the, the decade before I was born and carried on by Hobie and Dave. Wow. And so those are songs that were passed to me and were written by a sawmill worker, John Cunnick, and his wife, Kim. Wow. And so we started covering the Timberbound songs and Hobie songs and just really focusing on the Northwest folk music thing and still sprinkling in some other stuff. And so, t so I was doing two bands and, you know, making it work, living in Portland as Portland started to get more expensive. And then at one time, um, I, got, I went to uh, the String Summit Festival out in North Plains, and I met a woman named Lauren Collins. And Lauren Collins heard my music, and she said, oh, Joe, you got to meet my friend Ben Hunter. No way. <laughs> and, and I said, okay. And so I was up in Seattle visiting her, and I met Ben briefly, and then I had his band come down and open for my band at the Alberta Street Pub mm -hmm. one day. This is, this is maybe 2009 now, mm -hmm. 2010, something like that. And, and so Ben and the Gentleman Buck Hunters come down, and the Gentleman Buck Hunters opened up for the Renegade String Band. And then shortly so thereafter, the, the Buck Hunters kind of disbanded, and I was like, you know, I had been wanting to play with a fiddler and didn't know any fiddlers. And I said, hey, Ben, you want to join the Renegade String Band? Because we became buddies. Right. And he said, sure. And he started driving down the freeway all the time from Seattle to play with my band. Wow. And we started touring, and we, we toured out to, we played the Romp Festival in Kentucky, was kind of our biggest achievement, wow. and we did, you know, we put out a couple of albums, and, you know, we had a good time. We bought a big black bus, Black Betty, and we toured around the country. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was a good time. It was a, it was a fun, freewheeling time. And it was a band, and, there was four of you, five of you? Uh, so, so that was actually Renegade String Band, so that, it evolved, but it was myself, um, ben only joined later. It was um, Austin Moore was with me the longest. Austin is a, a friend from Lewis and Clark College too. He's okay. a mandolin and guitar player of just really, really talented. Um, my friend Max Kuzman played the bass. Uh, ben Larson played the mandolin in that band, but he also is a great guitar player mm -hmm. and has a has his own music project now. And Jess Jarris, who is uh, now a, a therapist, but is a fabulous singer wow. and also a, a guitar player now. And so we were we were buddies and, and we we did it pretty you know as much as we could yeah and but but Ben and I Ben and I discovered a kinship in that we really wanted to do a lot of the same things and that we were we were already teachers he was teaching after school classes up in Seattle as I was still doing down in Portland and we both wanted to teach and perform and we were really interested in, in the history of the music. So let me real quick, I'm just going to preface here for our listeners who are not familiar with Ben Hunter, and they absolutely should check your duo out without a question. Um, ben is one of those uh, amazing foundational voices in traditional music that happens to also be African-American. Um, and that right there is like one of those like moments of like, okay, here you are having this connection with this artist. And was it at this point that you started to explore beyond that cultural um, enclosed 
view in the Northwest of traditional music or were you already starting to explore and venture off before you met Ben? Which, I mean, how did that happen? How did that manifest? Yeah, I would say the, well, the other, the other big, I mean, Ben and I were both interested in making renegade string band. You know, we were doing kind of like bluegrass slash new grass, you know, like kind of in that Mm -hmm. sphere. And Ben and I wanted to do other things with the band. Like, let's do more styles of music. Our mm-hmm. band is called Renegade String Band. We don't need to just play this one style. Right. You know, and, and so we were kind of straining at that. And then I went, I was, I was at a party out, out at Lauren Sheehan's house. And she's a, she's a great finger picker, you know, a, so, a songster from, that has lived in Portland a long time. And, and Lauren has this big party out at her house in the Wilson River every summer. So I was out there at the She Carper Gata, and and she had her buddy, her buddy Waxwing is, is up from 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 California, and Waxwing is just singing Charlie Patton tunes, and I was kind of a gog because I never heard anybody like really try to play Charlie Patton's guitar pot guitar style. Charlie mm-hmm. Patton's a, one of the foundational um, Delta blues musicians who was really not a blues player. He was a songster who mm. played blues among many other things. And so Waxwing is doing his version of Charlie Patton and I start singing along to all the songs because I was religiously devoted to Charlie Patton because yeah. he's amazing. <laughs> and Lauren Sheehan kind of looked at me and goes, well, you need to go to, you need to go to Port Townsend. You need to go to the blues camp. And I was like, what? Ooh. And so she turned me on to the Port Townsend Acoustic Blues Festival. Oh, nice. And so I went up there. I was only able to get there for like a day and a half, but I got into Phil Wiggins' harmonica class. And again, I had been playing like Bob Dylan style harmonica on the neck rack, right? Nice. So I had some harmonica chops, but they were all self-taught and it was pretty loosey-goosey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so Phil, you know, Phil heard me playing a jam and said, ah, oh, you need to come to my class. And so I came to his class and he gave me some really valuable, you know, technique. Sure. And, and I was, you know, he was, back up for a second. So when you when you play music in an Irish jam or you play music in an old time jam or you play music in a bluegrass jam mm-hmm. there's a lot of hard liners mm-hmm. and they think you need to play it this way mm-hmm. or else please go play somewhere else yes and one we part experience of me, that all the time we all know about that, right? and part of me loves that because I believe in believing having your vision for what the music should sound like and mm-hmm. you do that and then I also think lighten up you need to welcome other people into your community right there's the, here, there's here. A few sides to it right yeah. I'm not I'm not going to totally reject the hardliners because I, I, I value their perspective. Totally. I mean, you, you preserve I, culture that way. Right, right. But going to the blues camp and having that experience with Phil Wiggins, this is my first experience of going into a traditional culture that was obviously not mine. And there was no hint of that. It was just, no, nah, here's how you do it, kid. You know, like not, not in any way of like browbeating, just mm-hmm. like welcome you in, mm-hmm. show you, show you something. And say go go work on that and do your own thing with it. Mm. You know, that was such a more holistically mm. valuable, welcoming thing. You know, I, I had play I had tried to play guitar in Irish jams when I was you know years before and been mm. just you know in Ireland and just like kid just stop just don't. <laughs> oh no. You know, like that was the harshest time. But like you know that's you get you, every all we all know that bluegrass and old time I mean, like white musicians in a lot of different cultures mm-hmm. uh, in America have that problem. Yeah. Um, with their culture. And so I wasn't experiencing that at Blues Camp and I loved the music already because I had been listening to Robert Johnson for like, or I've been listening to lots of different old early blues for like 10 years at this point. So I mm-hmm. knew the repertoire mm-hmm. by ear, not how to play it. Right. 
And so that was just that was just eye-opening. I was like, well, I'm coming back the whole week next time because I was only able to get there for a couple days yeah. in between my performance schedule. So I dragged Ben with me the next year. I said, Ben, you just need to trust me. We're going to this fucking camp. That's this is what's awesome. Happening. Wow, you yeah. dragged him. Yeah, and so we, we got we applied for scholarships and we were given we were given scholarships to go study at this camp. And so we went there. This is again I mean, it was two thousand thirteen by now or wow. something like mm-hmm. that. And and we were just like, oh, here is our community, you know. Wow. And so that was a that was an absolute because you're with you're with Phil Wiggins and Guy Davis and uh, Sun Pie Barnes and Susie Thompson. Yeah. And, oh yeah. You know, just, just uh, Mary Flower and just all of these unbelievable musicians who should be completely famous and mm-hmm. nobody knows who they are in the scheme of things right and they are and instead of being as like standoffish and (laughs) and like this is how you do it don't bother me kind of Mm -hmm. like they're just the most welcoming you're just hanging out with them drinking and playing music late into the night every night and then studying with them in classrooms all day long it was transformative so ben and i were really like that that pulled us further away from like what renegade string band was after Mm because we're not trying to do original-ish bluegrass-ish music we're not like that's that's not really what interests us so ben so then again lauren sheehan we're at that camp and lauren's like well the cool thing with you guys is you can just do the duo thing and we're like oh yeah the duo thing we hadn't really occurred to us so we we just so we started trying a duo thing and it really it just worked it was one of those things that just worked right away um because of whatever factors because we were both in a similar place in life we were close in age we had we had both been raised by by hippie moms mm-hmm. that were that came up at the end of the tail end of the 60s and so we just had a lot of like culturally aligned but ben was raised in phoenix arizona oh okay. where i was raised where i was and so we were coming from very different places that had a lot of interesting parallels and so that's how we started our duo and that's why we started the rhapsody project because we because we went to that same thought that you said earlier it's like mm-hmm. our american musical not just our music education system. Our education system is falling down right. because America has this insanely beautiful and complex tradition of music that has changed the entire world yep. with its power, yep. and we don't teach it to our own people. That's right. In any sort of co- comprehensive, systematic way, it can Absolutely. be used to teach, to teach math. It can be used to teach history. It can be used to teach all of these different parts of our of our culture. And yeah. it's not, it's not even t- like, what do they do? They teach you European like concert band and yeah. orchestra. That's and, what they and teach and you. Yet, and yet even the artists within America who have benefited from, um, you know, this tradition and, you know, the richness of where it came from, took it, made it their own and never paid homage or, or tribute to where it came from. And I think that's one of the most painful parts of American um, you know, uh, art history is, is that just that never paying homage or giving credit to where that came from. You know, there was no copy, a copyright back in the day. There was no way to protect your work as a, as an artist. And so it was easy to just kind of take it and run with it and claim it as your own. And I think that the awakening of that, the importance of that is, is, I mean, crucial. It's, it's just, there's no doubt that it is probably the most important thing to preserve American history is to recognize where the culture and the art comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and Ben, you know, you just described did this in 2013-ish. 
discovering the whole world of the blues in Port Townsend, um, which who's also home to fiddle tunes, another world totally. I think that you guys have uh, enriched and been enriched by. Uh, but you also won the International Blues uh, Challenge um, together as a right. duo. Yeah. How crazy a- is that? That you, you here you are kind of discovering, kind of figuring it all out, and then you go on to win something <laughs> that important. How was yeah, that? that was, and I'm sure that that was kind of the platform that just like, I mean, that was the cannon probably that shot the two of you out into the realm. Well, it's like um, we, you know, we didn't know that the <clears throat> International Blues Challenge was a thing, mm-hmm. but there's a very, there's a couple of very active people in the Washington Blues Society, one of whom is Tony Fredrickson. And Tony just saw us somewhere or hired us, you know, came across us and said, you guys need to do this thing. And we're like, well, does it pay? And he's like, well, only if you win. And we're like, uh, okay, well, mm-hmm. we'll consider it, you know. And so he kind of dragged us into doing it. And so we, you know, we performed for the thing, and they selected us. And I mean, this all blue societies in America. <laughs> the, the conversation about blue societies is a very other fraught thing, okay? Mm-hmm. Because these are. In, in a lot of places, in a lot of ways, these are white institutions that are saying they are preserving the blues and are preserving a lot of dad rockers, mm-hmm. in, uh, old white dudes mm-hmm. in their 50s and 60s and 70s who play electric guitar and basically rock music, okay? Mm-hmm. So I just have to put that as a qualifier yeah. because I want to talk about how much support we got from the Washington Blues Society to get to that award. Um, you know, they dragged us into it. We did it because, okay, you know, like Ben and I are basically just trying anything to make it work. You know, we'll, 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 we'll seize any opportunity because that's what you have to do right. to have any chance making a living on your music. So we, we do the, a round of competition in Washington. We make it through all the rounds. They select us to go to Memphis. They pay for our plane tickets. They pay for, pay for our hotels to go to Memphis in uh, January of 2016. And we go down there and... We are performing in these, you know, you basically have 15 to 25 minutes, depending on what round you're in, to perform your, your material. And then there's in front of a panel of judges in the little clubs along Beale Street. And that happens for another three or four rounds of competition. And by this time, luckily, Ben and I had started doing some acapella material in our repertoire. Oh, wow. And so just to back, I mean, part, so part of the success that we had was that I think I think it's resonant with people to see the simplicity of a duo, and then also that one of the men is is black and one is white, mm-hmm. and and you know because I think that that gives some people the warm and fuzzies on a level in this country, so that probably helped us out somewhat. Sure. But I think the biggest thing for us was that we weren't just playing guitar and singing like a lot of the acts there, or guitar and harmonica. We, you know, I was playing a little bit of banjo. I mean, I'd play a banjo song. Mm-hmm. Ben would play the fiddle. Mm-hmm. I would play guitar. I would play harmonica. Ben would rattle the bones. Wow. And then we would sing a cappella stuff, right? So we have a range of material, yeah. all of which is, is inherently connected to blues because as anybody who knows their shit knows, in America, there is no music that is not connected to blues. Um, and so we're doing a range of different styles that are all derived from blues music um, and, and doing our own thing with it as we had been taught to do at the Port Townsend Festival. And so, so, and we were also very deliberate about trying to tell stories about where the music was from 
and you know not trying to present like that we are authentic blues musicians it's like no we're we're from seattle you know mm -hmm. we don't yeah. <laughs> we're not from mississippi right we, we just we just know where the music is from and we pay homage to that to right. the people right. and the places that it comes from because right. that is that is how you do it right absolutely and so because of the education we had from from that from from having studied with elders and learned how you pass it on um, that enriched what we did and we had started doing acapella numbers right and blues is really what blues is is it's a combination of two things it's the it's what they call the field hollers right the the, the solo or call and response laments mm -hmm. that that enslaved people developed to process the experience of enslavement and then and then it is the techniques of of black banjo styles developed by enslaved people in America and then evolved through the Jim Crow era mm -hmm. and then apply those banjo styles applied to the guitar and then the guitar used to accompany what used to be the field hollers in a new style of music like that is what blues music is mm -hmm. it's, it's those two things combined and then developed into a, a variety of styles of which like a solo male performer with a guitar is now like our that's the thing that we think in our heads right. is what blues music is, right? But that's just a that's just a thing that's been commercially well sold and sewn in our brains as a as what blues is. So, anyways, we had a deeper awareness of what blues was, where it was coming from. We were talking about that, and so that so we went back to the field hollers and we were singing our a cappella duet renditions of of field recordings like Diamond Joe, made by Charlie Butler in. Uh, in Mississippi in the in the nineteen in the nineteen forties and so in the nineteen thirties excuse me and so that was like we had that whole range of material going and we had a we had an acknowledgement and awareness of where the music came from mm -hmm. and so that catapulted us into the finals in Memphis they put you in the Orpheum Theater and this is like a big fancy theater wow. on the end of Beale Street where you know you're like in front of like three or four thousand people and so we performed there and and we're we're given the we're given first place in the in the 2016 blues challenge and it was a really you know it was a quick culmination because like we were talking about this is only like three years after we went to blues camp yeah so it was really just because we because we went all the way down that rabbit hole we committed to it yep. and we didn't stop being the other things we were you know ben is a violinist mm -hmm. i am a banjo player mm -hmm. but that's not what you think of as blues but of course there's blues violin mm -hmm. and of course there's banjo as part of the blues tradition. You just have to know your stuff to know that that's part of it too. So, But what an affirmation. Yeah, the, I mean, that right there must have been an affirmation for authenticity is all, is the ingredient you need. When mm -hmm. you truly come from a place of authenticity and you recognize that the intention is that of, you know, creating a platform and celebrating the, you know, the genuine aspect of any kind of art you can't but be rewarded for that, you know, and you guys showed up not even imagining that you would win. It was kind of an opportunity that presented itself. You didn't even know what it was. And right. here you go and show up in all your fullness and all your truth and all your um, humility to some degree, because there is that humility in recognizing, you know, we're, you know, we just basically jumped on this you know, uh, wagon and here we are. Right. Uh, and you know, the recognition of that, and I'm sure that the enthusiasm, I mean, the money probably was great. Cause like you said, you get paid only if you win, but that was probably secondary to the inspiration that then came after that for the Rhapsody project. I want to know all about it. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, the, um, you know, the Rhapsody Project was also like when we were at Port Townsend and we saw the way the music was being transmitted, we went, well, like what, what the heck were they doing in, when we were educated? Mm -hmm. where, where was all of this? Yeah. Um, you know, and so that's both like inspiring, but also deeply enraging because right. it's like, you know, th this should be, this should be very, very public common knowledge and is this, and has been somehow relegated to this little niche of our culture. Mm -hmm. And so we said, well, you know, Ben had a nonprofit going already called Community Arts Create mm -hmm. and Community Arts Create was founded to bring people together commun communally through art of all mm -hmm. kinds. And so the Rhapsody Project started as a program of Community Arts Create. Like this is going to be the music arm of Ben's nonprofit. And so, you know, he and I founded it together. I was kind of spearheading it because Ben was running like the larger nonprofit and I was focused on the music dimension of things. And we would teach together. We had workshops and we would just, we would, you know, do a version of what we perform as, right? We'd tell the history, share the songs, mm -hmm. acknowledge where the stuff came from. And it started evolving. And so I told you Ben was teaching after school classes, right? Yeah. So he's teaching after school at Washington Middle School. And I'm, and I'm, and I was asked by, by him and, and his uh, colleague, Beth Fortune, to go and kind of do the, the guitar, the, the accompaniment part of this, what's called Junior Fiddlers to mm -hmm. start with, right? And so Junior Fiddlers was really like copacetic with the Rhapsody Project because we can teach them the whole range of the music, right? We teach a little bit of jazz, we teach some fiddle tunes, we teach some blues tunes, mm -hmm. and all of that, there's fiddle involved in all of that music. And so I'm teaching guitar and bass and, and just accompaniment, mm -hmm. mostly guitar players, a little bit of banjo. And Ben's teaching mandolin and, and fiddle. Mm -hmm. And we're just like teaching these kids twice a week at wow. after school at Washington Middle School in the Central District in Seattle. And so that's kind of going along. And at the same time, Ben co-founded a space in South Seattle called the Hillman City Collaboratory. Mm -hmm. And so I volunteered there to help kind of get the thing going and do a little bit of the work parties that kind of got it open. And then this is like a community space where you can have a, you can launch your nonprofit or you can host your, your wedding reception, you know, or you can have, so we would host jam sessions and concerts there. And that was, so that was like a space that was communal, that was public, where we could invite the students and their families to come hang out wow. and jam. So beautiful. And then of course we'd invite all our musician friends in Seattle to take part in that too. So we had some beautiful days and, and, and a few workshops and, and concerts there just really to get the kids and get all the generations together and connect around the music. So that was, that was how the Rhapsody project started. Mm -hmm. But again, like this is, we're talking 2013, 2014. Mm -hmm. So I, so we've been doing the Rhapsody project steadily for about seven years. Amazing. And, and at the same time, like, you know, and then, you know, life is happening, changes are happening. And, um, at the, at the blues festival, a couple of years after I started going there, I met a young woman named Tina Dietz and she was a great singer who grew up right down the road from Port Townsend and never knew it was there until she was singing at work one day. She's working in one of the little boutique shops there in Port Townsend and the, and the owner overhears Tina singing and says, have you ever been to the blues festival? <laughs> no and way. she's like, no, what's that? You know? And she, and like to her, like Port Townsend was like, that's the townies. We don't associate with them. Yeah. She <laughs> was like one of the very few black people raised on the peninsula. And at that time, and, and was like asked by this, you know, I don't know, I don't know who the owner, I don't know what the shop was, but that's where she was working. And they gave, they just put a ukulele in her hands and said, you're going. And they paid her tuition Whoa. and she went to the blues festival. And so that's where I met her. This would have been about 2015, maybe. Mm -hmm. And and so so that's where we met Tina. And I and and she and I started a relationship a couple of years after that. 
and she's now my fiance. And so she also became a part of the Rhapsody Project because, you know, we wanted to especially serve students from historically marginalized populations, right? I mean, that's part of the goal is like, definitely all students need to hear this, but especially young African-American students need to know about this music because it is their heritage. Yes. Their people created it and they don't know that it exists. That's messed up. And there's no, and there's also no black kids at this festival, right? Right, There's, you're in Port Townsend, so there's not like a a large African-American population within a hundred miles of the place. Sadly. Um, So anyways, so, so Tina is, starts like volunteering for the Rhapsody Project. I start dating Tina and she starts helping us like reach, connect with and bring into the fold young young African-American students, you know, as Ben had been doing and as I'd been doing as well as I was able. But in, in, so in a lot of ways, like Tina started assisting us and, and then I started a scholarship fund and was able to start getting some of the students from South Seattle to the blues camp. This was three years ago. Wow. And so, and so that was, that was also very instrumental because it changed the camp because it changed the whole dynamics to have like a young cohort of people that were in their teens and younger that were like wanting to study the music and that really like it enriched the festival and obviously enriched the students. And so that was like a really big success of the Rhapsody project. That's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that was really exciting. And then it, and then it evolved one more time because like now, you know, Ben's getting really interested in like community development in terms of like, how do we get more cultural space in the hands of historically marginalized people? Right. And so we started the black and tan hall to that end, which is a whole nother story. And because, but basically like, how do we have the the collaboratory, not just be leased, but be owned and be permanently dedicated as a cultural space? How do we have multiple cultural spaces all along a historically like immigrant and you know, diverse strip of the city in Seattle where this is going to be cultural space owned and directed by the people who have been marginalized systematically since our nation was created. So Ben's working more on that. And so he pivoted away from like being very active in the Rhapsody Project Mm -hmm. a couple years ago because he's focused on that work. Sure. And, And so I've really just been like leading it since then. And, and now I'm working to write it into a, basically a model because other communities wow. from the blues camp, I learned like, oh, there's other like elders that I've been studying with in the black community that have been like trying to get young people involved and haven't figured out how to do it. Yeah. And so, but, but Ben and Tina and I kind of figured it out. And so I'm trying to document our model so that we have basically here's how you institute your own version of the Rhapsody project in your community. And so that's what, that's what I'm trying to take all this COVID time to do is like build out that because I've got a friend in Richmond, Virginia, Justin Golden, who's a brilliant songwriter and uh, an African-American musician and finger picking guitar player who wants to, who has already just filed the paperwork to start his own chapter of the Rhapsody project there. Whoa. Um, Wow. And so, so we're we're taking the model nationwide, that, and that, uh, that's the work now. So I mean, truly, there is no sweeter um, note to uh, end on. I guess uh, this interview could go on seriously for another hour because <laughs> there's just I mean I feel like we barely scratched the surface. I hope you'll come back, Joe, because I feel like today we did this like beautiful, rich storytelling introduction of who you are. But I feel like we need way more time to dive into you know the depth of this this transformation because you're now not just part of a transformation you've spearheaded some of this transformation um 
where it, I mean, you took on the responsibility of who you are, your upbringing, your, your cultural heritage, and took that on as a responsibility to really, you know, start and, and take the change to a whole other level. Um, and now you're taking it nationwide. So did you ever imagine when you were thinking maybe in the confines of wanting to become a musician and a performer that it was going to be way bigger than that? Because you've turned into something way bigger than, and I'm not minimizing performers or musicians because, I mean, in my opinion, the world could not exist without art. Uh, I also believe that artisan and performers choose that path because they have something more to tell through the art and through their their music and, you know, whatever other form of art they choose. And, and here you are, uh, you know, not even 40, and you're already putting that, you know, um, completely in the hands of the community. Yeah, well, I definitely didn't imagine it, and I definitely would love to come back because I definitely, you know, I, 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 it's hard for me to tell all the all the things without going on and on and on. Oh, I'm happy um, you do. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm I'm definitely happy to come back because I just love to just get into you know another part of the Rhapsody Project is the work that has evolved out of this is like helping largely white communities like I grew up in. How do they create a culture that is welcoming to other cultures so that we don't keep social segregation as the norm in this country? Um, that has to start in white communities, and I've learned through working with a lot of very brilliant people of color, um, I've, I've learned some tools and some strategies for how to do that. And so another piece of the Rhapsody Project is our model for cultural engagement, you know, for, for enriching, for, first of all, working on ourselves so yeah. that we can be a, be a positive force in the world. So I would love to come back and just get all into that. Seriously, um, yeah. I, I, it's own conversation. It's, I mean, it's... it's I, I'm blown away by uh, the depth of, of commitment and the depth of intention that you've uh, allowed your own music to take you. Uh, again, I, I know that you're you're humbled by the the reference uh, bravery, but it is it is a brave thing thing because we live in a time where it is very scary to speak up to um, say the things that are right at the right time in the right place to the right people. It is a little scary to do that. And you are championing that in a very kind of a compassionate way, in a kind way, um, but also in a not making, no, not apologizing for it way. And and I applaud you for that, and I thank you for that. Um, before we completely wrap up, there's two things, two more things I want to do. The first one is I'd like you to tell us just briefly, highlight for us some of the projects that we absolutely have to check out that you're into right now. Um, and then I want to do a very quick uh, kind of like a, you know, I, I just I enjoy wrapping up these sessions with like a rapid fire speed round questions for you. Sweet. But I want to hear Fun. a little bit about your yeah your projects. OK, so the the newest project is I mentioned my my partner, now fiance, uh, Tina Dietz. She mm -hmm. performs as Briar. So right. if you go to www.briarsings.com, you can hear her music and learn about like what what she and I are, are working on together. Um, so that's my newest project. Beautiful. Um, the project we were just talking about, the Rhapsody Project, is found at at www.therhapsodyproject.org. Mm -hmm. It's a nonprofit. So R H A P S O D Y is mm -hmm. how you spell Rhapsody, like Rhapsody in Blue mm -hmm. or what have you. So therhapsodyproject.org and. Uh, you can hear Ben and my music at, at benjomusic.com. 
And so those are the those are like the three most active of my projects, mm -hmm. or will be most active if we ever get out of quarantine. Oh goodness, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but and and the the best way to learn about like more in depth and in a more considered way than I can talk off the cuff is at my my Patreon page, which okay. is patreon.com slash Joe Banjo, J-O-E Banjo. Um, so that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Joe Banjo. And that's a really, if you can just subscribe for a dollar a month on there, it really helps me just get my, get my message out there and engage with you on a more individual level on like, this is what I'm working on. How can we collaborate um, to, to bring the work to more communities. Excellent. I'll also have all that in writing with the podcast information. I'll make sure that people, um, uh, well, that they have all that, you know, all those links ready. And also they can follow everything you're doing through any of these websites. Obviously, many of them are specific to that specific project, but you'll be updating all of those websites with what's happening even now during the quarantine time, because... You know, we're looking at several weeks, maybe even months uh, of this situation. But through those links, they'll be able to know what's going on even um, remotely and virtually with you. And they'll Absolutely. also have the opportunity, hopefully, to participate if they choose to. I hope they do to support the Rhapsody Project and all other projects that you're doing that definitely serve the community and serve the young kids, especially in marginalized communities. Um, and I hope that they feel moved and motivated to do that. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Joe, let's do this. Let's wrap it up yeah, with some it. fun. I'm so, so ready. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Seattle or Portland? Oh, Seattle. Got to do it. Okay, fiddle tunes or folk songs? <laughs> folk songs. Uh, the woods or the beach? The woods. Um, favorite singer or band? Uh, the Joy. They're from South Africa. Awesome. Uh, ice cream or cake? Cake. Favorite season? Autumn. Pet peeve? Uh, what do you call it? Self self flagellation. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, not like not literally, fig yeah. figuratively. Yeah. Right? No. 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 I. I. That. Wow. That. That. That's. That's deep. We need to go into that one next time. I'm going to make a note. <laughs> um, favorite comfort food. Uh, corn pops. Mmm. Yum. Um, dream duet partner that you have not had a chance to work with. Ooh. And it can be as crazy as even even maybe someone that's no longer with us. Uh, I mean, Bessie Smith. Okay. Wow. And the last, most important question of all, help us solve the mystery of whether pineapple belongs on pizza or not. <laughs> uh, yes, pineapple belongs on pizza. Pizza <laughs> can be anything. Well, we you've got my sons happy, but I, I'm, I'm Italian. <laughs> I'm Italian because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a little indignant about that. Yeah. But, but I, um, I, have, I have it eaten pineapple on pizza. It is delicious, but it's wrong. I understand. I, understand. I, I, I have had Italian pizza many times, mm -hmm. and I hear you. Yes. Well, I appreciate that. So you understand. Joe, you are such a pleasure and such a treasure. And I am, I am so looking forward to all the ways in which you're going to explode even beyond what you've already done. Thank you so much, first of all, for taking the time to do this. Um, your presence, your commitment, your heart and soul are just 
contagious. Um, I really hope that more and more people, um, you know, sign up to what they're unfamiliar with and, and get to know you better. And uh, I look forward to part two because there has to be a part two. There's no way we can end it here. By all means, I look forward to that too, Jasmine. I so appreciate you taking the interest and I look forward to talking again. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. This podcast is produced and recorded by Dante Falk, edited and mixed by Eros Falk, original music by Dante and Eros Falk, recorded in Olympia, Washington at Casa Nostra Studios. Visit the website, jasminefalkdickerson.com. Ciao for now. Thank you.